I'm Catherine Mazzone here on behalf of Mojo Streaming, and I am pleased to announce our guest today is Armand Grobler. Thank you so much for joining us, Armand. Yes, that's a big pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, no, I, uh, I look forward to having a, a chat with you and uh, talking about the, the project. Absolutely. The pronunciation of the name was very well. I'm not going to change that. <laughs> okay, that is the Australian or English pronunciation, but there is a South African pronunciation in case anyone wants to know. Go ahead, Armand. Yes, it's pronounced Armand Grobler. All right, so I'm still practicing. That's why I didn't throw it out there. Uh, but thank you so much again for no, being with us. Uh, no, you, you're the wild, you're a wildlife photographer. And you run Rulani Safaris, is that correct, in South Africa? Yes, that's correct. So we started off with, um, with Rulani Safaris first, um, and then it, it started off as just a normal safari company. And then we now specialize in, um, in the photographic tours. Um, I've, been, I've been doing safaris now for roughly about uh, nine years now, so yeah, bordering 10. So, um, wow. but yeah, now we've got the Rulani is our family um, company. That's awesome. And, and I have to ask, why did you decide to make that transition into photography safaris? So I personally love the photographic aspect of it. I, um, I, I've always loved nature and nature has been something that's been in, installed in, in our family from generations. Uh, my, fam my parents, their honeymoon was in the Kruger National Park. 
And um, so I was only a couple months old, actually, when I went there for the first time. Um, so obviously, I can't remember it, but I probably would have enjoyed it. And uh, so from then on, when we went to Australia, I kept on that passion and love for wildlife. I started working in a pet shop, pet shop um, at the age of uh, 13 and nine months or 14 and nine months, correction. And then uh, I went and I worked, volunteered at Taronga Zoo, which is a big um, zoo in Sydney. And then when I came back here, we went for a visit into the Kruger National Park and I just fell in love with the place again. It was ironically a leopard side thing that I, we, we were driving in one of the, uh, one of the major roads and this uh, leopard popped out from behind a bush and I just wish I had a camera to photograph it. And then that sort of sparked the idea of coming back. And then, um, yeah, so one thing led to the other. We started off with safaris and then my passion and opportunity to do professional photography um, was there. So I took that um, starting off professionally in 2019 and haven't stopped. Awesome. And, and is the leopard what triggered your fascination with the big cats as well? Yes, correct. So my I absolutely love the big cats. You know, I love all of nature, but there's very few things that can uh, get my heart racing um, like a leopard does. Uh, the leopard is also the logo of our uh, company, Rulani Safaris, and um, it's also the major focus, especially on our tours. So Photo Safari Kruger, my book, was completed in the Sabi San uh, Game Reserve, which forms part of the Kruger, or the Greater Kruger. And so the major focus on those safaris is leopards as well. And uh, I chose that area specifically because of the high density of leopard. We usually get them on every drive, but at least every day. So it's, uh, it's actually quite nice to see them so frequently and to be able to get those postcard sort of um, photographic opportunities. Yeah, I'll say. I, I think of Africa and I think of safaris and I immediately think lions. I don't automatically think leopards. I, I, for some reason, thought that leopards were more difficult to spot, that they were more elusive because they're more solitary creatures. So is that true? And if, and if that's the case, how do you uh, find so many? Is it just a knack you have? <laughs> Ironically, we were discussing it about an hour ago, uh, this sort of knack, but no, it actually isn't. Um, so since actually completing Photo Safari Kruger, I've started a second book incorporating the Kalahari and um, the Okavango Delta regions of Botswana, also with the, the Greater Kruger. And in the space of about eight weeks, I've only seen leopard three times. So leopards are very difficult to find generally. It's just because of our location in the Sabi Sands that uh, we spe I've specifically chosen an area where the leopard density is very, very high. And... Um, so it's not actually, and that's what brings it, you know, lions are beautiful. Um, and they are majestic, um, but, you know, they are also quite a regular sighting. And most of the time when you see them, they sleep. So leopards are far more active. They're far more you know, intriguing to watch. Um, they are more difficult to find uh, generally. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's for me, the, the, the lion is the king and the, the leopard is definitely the queen of the bush. Mm. I think of I think of the leopards that I've seen, and unfortunately, that's just been in captivity. But yeah. I remember them standing out because they would just pace. There was a there was a you know a worn path, and their mm. 
in their enclosure where they would just pace all day. Look, it's important to remember, I had this discussion as well a while ago with someone that was very against zoos. So uh, I would like to start off with, you know, zoos also do play a very important role. Um, I know that some zoos, you know, they don't take um, sufficient care of the animals, but if an animal is born into a zoo, then it doesn't know the wild. Now, what people don't often see is, you know, the zoos, at least the animals have got care. They are maybe an enclosure, yes, but uh, they've got care, they get fed, you know, they have the opportunity to reproduce, they don't fight um, in the wild. I've seen animals like lions fighting, okay, then they get a broken back or a broken leg or a broken jaw, and then they actually suffer. There's no medical attention for them out there. So um, the zoos also do have a specific role, and that is frequently to sort of, it's like with you, if you hadn't seen a leopard in a zoo before, you would have maybe never seen a wild leopard. So it, it exposes these animals in areas where they're not naturally found, like in America. Um, Mm-hmm. So, um, and in Australia as well, we had uh, we had a leopard there um, in in um, in the Sydney in Taronga Zoo. So, you know, they do have their roles. It's not always easy to see um, the sort of animal behind the, the the enclosure, but those animals don't know better, and they are well looked after most of the time, depending on which zoo. But seeing them in their natural habitat, there simply isn't any better. Um, you know, when, you, when you're seeing a leopard lying in a tree and then it goes, jumps down the tree and you get to follow it and it starts drinking water and then it starts going on a hunt or you've got a mother and cubs, you know, there is no better than that. But there's a place and a time for everything. And I believe that, you know, done correctly, even zoos, rehabilitation centers, um, I've actually got a rehabilitation center just behind me. So I hear those lions roaring, you know, every night. Uh, I've heard them even throughout this uh, conversation. Um, So, you know, there is a a place for all of them. Sure, sure. Agreed. I think it's interesting because you have had the ability to, to observe these animals in the wild. And it's a different perspective that you see um, versus someone who sees them in captivity where they might be pacing or just sleeping yeah. like lions yeah. do apparently yeah. all the time. But I I guess, could you describe it all? Um, what about that is so appealing to you? You know, it's what I always say is the, the Kruger is about a two and a half million hectare um, uh, uh, a reserve so you know that's a massive massive area um, I speak under correction but I think it's it's larger even than Israel or at least the same size as Israel or other countries you know so to be able to find something like a leopard or a lion even in the wild is difficult enough as it is okay so you know that's that's the challenging part already because it's such a massive area now Contrary to maybe what many people believe, there aren't lions and leopards around every corner. So they've got territories, and some of these territories can be large, depending on which area um, they're inhabiting. So some of these territories can be quite large, and finding them is actually very challenging. Sometimes they can be five meters from the road, but lying in long grass, and then you miss them. So to find them is firstly difficult enough. And then secondly, you know, it takes a long time for them to get habituated with vehicles 
So there's a careful process that we do in the Sabisan Game Reserve is that uh, when a, let's use, we'll use a leopard as an example. So when a leopard is born uh, and it's still a small cub, um, no vehicle are allowed to, is allowed to come close to it um, until the animal is about eight weeks old, between eight and about 10 weeks old. And then only one vehicle is allowed to approach at a distance. Okay, eventually as a cub becomes used to the vehicles, it becomes two vehicles and no more than three vehicles. So our sightings are limited to three vehicles per sighting to not stress the animals. So, you know, it's a very uh, hectic process in order to build up that trust. So when you are sitting there observing this animal, it's not just an animal, it is an animal that's been found and through generations has built up a trust, you know, with um, the guides of the parks. And so when you observe this, you got to think about all of the work that's been done because leopards specifically are extremely secretive animals. And I always believe that you will not see them unless they allow you to see them because they know that you're there. They are very secretive. And, um, you know, most of the time, even here by us, we've got wild leopards um, walking around here, but you rarely ever see them. You only see their tracks. So um, to be able to see them, you know, it takes a lot of work to get there. And then to watch them in a natural habitat is just, you know, it's, it, it, that is unique in itself. And I guess you can't really explain that to someone un, unless they've experienced it themselves. Um, it's very difficult to, to sort of explain that emotion that you get, you, you get attached to this animal. And, um, and when you're on the safari, we get to follow the animals quite frequently. So you actually see you know, how that animal grows up, you know, we followed a female leopard that had her cubs for the first time and she, you know, to be able to see the cubs grow and it's, it's, it's a very nice process that takes a lot of time as well. So I guess it comes through, you know, um, it's nice to see the animal, but then also to remember as to why we can see them and the amount of work that's gone into, into being able to see these creatures. I think of that trust and then I think of um, trophy hunters, because they're also out there. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and they are, in essence, not yeah. to be trusted, uh, just as a matter of predator and prey. Um, yeah. So have you experienced that? Or, or do you know how that might affect that trust? Yeah, so it definitely affects it massively. Um, if an animal associates a vehicle with, um, you know, with danger, then like I said, that animal can hear a vehicle coming or see a vehicle long before you actually see the animal. So it definitely, it, it breaks that trust. And, it, and it, it, it doesn't happen so much here in the Greater Kruger because there's no, um, there's no trophy hunting yeah they do have culling okay culling is a completely different thing um than what it is with um with with the hunting culling is is purely to remove an excess amount of animals so a lot of the smaller reserves that don't have predators okay so um you've got game farms out here um that's used for housing so you can live in a like what i do we live in a, uh, a very small nature estate now we don't do culling in here, but we have to um, change the animals around so that the genetics, you know, otherwise it's just inbreeding. So you do have reserves that will do the culling and the culling is done professionally in a way that it doesn't actually affect the wider sort of the broader um, 
the wildlife community, as I could say, but the trophy hunting definitely. And I see more of that in Botswana. Botswana with their trophy hunting, because there's very few fences um, that, uh, um, that, that separate the reserves. So you can have a hunting farm next to one of a national park. And then that animal associates that vehicle um, with danger, then it moves into the national park. And then that can also create conflict as well and danger, obviously. But no, there is with trophy hunting, especially in, a, in an area where game viewing is, is very dangerous. I see. And uh, I understand that it's become, well, we've, we've had several debates on it and, and it's really come into the spotlight recently with the talk of banning the importation of trophy animals into the UK. So uh, I'm curious on the ground there, um, you're in the business of photo tourism. I'm, I'm sure you don't have experience with trophy hunters per se, like, you know, the whole business aspect, but yeah. what can you say about photo tourism and the ability to sustain um, any sort of profits lost by trophy hunting? Yeah, so we, the, the closest that I've come with trophy hunting is I was standing in the, I was boarding a plane and then there were two people behind me talking about hunting elephants. So. I really haven't. Um, I haven't really experienced it. You know that was that was the closest. Um, and no, it wasn't an American. <laughs> it was a uh, it was a Russian uh, a Russian client with a South African uh, hunter. But um, so you know, I don't really get to deal with that often. But um, with photo with the, with with photographic tours, um, you know what we found is that people more and more people bring cameras on surface. I'm not talking about your big expensive professional equipment. You know, it can be anything as a new smartphone, like an iPhone 13, you know, it's got a couple of cameras on there, anything to your bigger camera. Now, people always want to take something home. You want to be able to show your friends and family what you've experienced. So photographic based tours are definitely getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And more people are sort of looking into that. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually become um, one of the, the sort of pioneer safaris here in the Sabi Sand region because of that. Now, photographic safaris are not only aimed at professionals whatsoever, but the thing that makes photographic safaris so unique is that we spend a lot of time with the animals, viewing the animals, specifically leopard, lion, you know, um, cheetah, wild dog. You spend a lot of time with it because on a traditional safari, your guide might take you to a sighting. You'll still see the leopard, but it'll probably be sleeping, doing not doing much. The guide will give a little bit of information about it, and then you move on, and then you go and look for something else. Okay, so you do see the animal, but you don't spend a lot of time with it necessarily, okay? With photographic tours, we try and get the most out of the sighting. So we spend the maximum amount of time with that animal. So you can see it sleeping, then walking and drinking and moving and you can actually see the habits and because of that you know that creates better photographic opportunities but not only for the professional you know it's exciting to be able to show your family listen look what we saw we saw um, a lion walking and or elephants feeding and coming close to the vehicles and so forth you know instead of just maybe taking an image of something sleeping behind a bush so there's it's not only aimed at the professional um, but the guide needs to be well educated in camera handling because he needs to be able to 
explain to the guests how to use the equipment, how to get the best out of that sighting. And if there's a problem, he needs to be able to address that issue. Yeah. And I guess my question about the trophy hunting in comparison is more um, that of, do you think that photo tourism could become big enough or profitable enough to make up for, let's say they did away with trophy hunting? Because there's talk of, of trophy hunters being able to support some of these communities. Mm. And then there's the, the argument against saying photo tourism is way more lucrative and does mm. an even better job of supporting communities. So how would you say, what would you say mm. your role is in the surrounding community? I think, you know, um, I think photo tourism definitely has got the potential, um, you know, in the longer spectrum. It's not, it, it has been around for a while, um, but it really is picking up now. Um, you see more and more companies now offering it as an as addition to their already set safaris. Um, more and more guides are getting into, you see more um, specialized photographers and so forth um, coming up. Um, I don't know how much of an income the trophy hunting actually produces, but the one thing that I can say is with what I know about the trophy hunting is that, um, you know, a lot of the time, um, the, 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 if you go and you hunt an elephant, let's say for instance, um, you'll, you'll pay a hundred thousand rand for that elephant. Um, I'm giving an example. And now that one elephant might make up you know 10 photographic clients so it just it's going to depend on the managing of it so you know they do have a it, it definitely does have a, 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 a it's a, trophy hunting is very successful in the sort of income but you have to manage it um, carefully you you can't just take hunters in and decimate an entire species especially because what do trophy hunters want they want the biggest the largest, the most powerful, you know, they're not going to choose the scrawny lion there that's lying in the bush, you know, they want a big one. And when you do that, then you actually do a lot of damage because then you're taking out the stronger genes and you're encouraging the weaker genes to grow. So I can't really comment on the income because I don't know much about it, um, about the trophy hunting side, but I definitely do believe that photographic and photo tourism um, has got the potential to, to grow and at least compete or if not overtake the uh, hunting industry. Yeah. And, and, and I understand, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to add on um, with regards to the hunting here, it's not also marketed very well. So they try and keep it because of, you know, obviously people uh, having that connection with the animals, you know, you've got a, a lot of, um, I'd say greenies now with, with respect. Um, so they, that, that'll go in a, and object to it. So the, the marketing here is actually very, very poor. You don't get a lot of marketing. I think most of the, the hunting companies will anyway go over to the other countries for exhibitions and expos and that sort of stuff to do the marketing. So even in South Africa, I can't recall even once actually seeing a marketing campaign for hunting. Um, I think that's mostly done done overseas. So it's not big here. I think it's yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely not something that's it's massive in in this area at least. Mm -hmm. And that makes me wonder: Do you have a lot of competition? You said that photo tourism was becoming more popular. Um, mm -hmm. Have you noticed that you've had to fight more for your clients? Yeah. No, you know one thing I have noticed is that people 
it's it's the, the competition has forced you to think outside the box, which is why I published the book Photo Safari Kruger. Um, I sp specifically wanted to do it with Photo Safari uh, because it is it, it gives you a, an in-depth look as to what a photographic safari is, the sort of sightings that you can see. I give a bit of hints, photographic hints in the book, um, and then as well as creative photography. So I try and work through two um, sort of um, two ways in the book. One is creativity and also one is emotion so i try and use use that to convey the conservation message over and to be able to obviously to keep the reader entertained but yes it definitely makes you think outside the box as to what can you give the client that the other companies can't you mentioned you mentioned conservation and um talking to to folks nowadays they say that it's it's a necessity more than it is an, an elective. Mm. If you're a fan of wildlife, you have to be a conservationist as well. So yeah. how, how do you think that plays into what you do? I think it's, yeah, it's important. So obviously when, when we take guests, let's say to the Southeast Sand Game Reserve, we pay the lodge. Okay. So the lodge has got um, its guides. It's, it's got to, it's got to pay off its stuff, but then you've also got a rhino levy, which goes against the, for the um, anti-rhino, anti-rhino poaching campaign you've got a conservation levy um, you've got your entrance fees that you have to pay so all of these excess monies now go towards conservation but it's not only that it's the safari itself when and that's what i believe is if you can emotionally attach a person with the subject okay as soon as there's an emotional attachment they care about it think about it if you've got a dog You've got a pet, a bird, a friend, you know. If you get emotionally attached to something or someone, then you care for it and you want to save it. You want to be there for it. So what I try and do is with the book is to also get people emotionally attached to the subject. And then if they can, you know, uh, and I speak about it in the book as well, there are many ways of conservation. And one of them is a safari because, you know, that will keep our industry going. Um, that will be so many people because of COVID-19 lost their jobs, um, not only guides, but anti-poaching um, people. The poaching got very bad here, specifically with rhinos. I used to go to Kruger Park as a kid, and I used to be able to, we used to play a game where you count as the, the, the big five, okay? I used, we used to stop counting at about 60, 70 rhinos within a week, okay? We used to stop, so we've counted in excess. Now, if you see one, you... Uh, it's good it's 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 a good if you see three or four it's it's a lot where does that leave you you're doing what you can with this with these monies um and you you facilitate this emotional bond um what do you tell people when they ask you about that yeah look it's it's difficult once again to 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 tell people, but I like showing them. When you see a rhino, especially if it's a female with the calf, most of the time the females do have calves with them, and you see this animal and you picture it standing there by its dead mother, okay, with the mother's horn being cut off, that that sort of pulls your your heartstrings, and people then get you know then people start acting. Um, I, I've got a friend who visited me today. He was a police officer um, here in South Africa for 20, 30 years, but now he's the head of anti-poaching and he has 
he, he, he absolutely adores rhinos now because he has seen firsthand what happens to them. So, you know, we spoke about it just today, how his passion and love for rhinos has, has grown because of just being able to see them. What else haven't I asked you, Armand, that you think is important for folks to know? I think, you know, a lot of the things I spoke to some potential guests uh, during this week and, you know, people are saying, you know, is it safe to travel? Um, is it safe to, to come to South Africa or is it, you know, I would say the people, if, if people are able to travel, if you can do it, you know, not only South African, but African tourism needs it. African tourism, the conservation aspect, you know, the livelihoods, people need it. And I would encourage people to, to travel as much as possible. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be with us. It can be anywhere in Africa. Um, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Namibia, South Africa, uh, Congo, you know, but the tourism really needs it because it's not only the, the animals that are suffering, but the people are suffering as well. And uh, I think, like I said, there's many ways of, of, of conserving nature and a safari is one of them and probably the biggest one. So I would want to encourage people to, to travel if they are able to do so, obviously in a financial state to do so. And then, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing, you know, just to, it's not as dangerous as what people might think both with COVID-19 and all of these other things that's going on. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, try and encourage people to, to come and, and join on a safari. Yeah. Would you say that that is the best way to give back to the community and the animals? Yeah. They, when you talk about community, it's actually a very good point. So all of the lodges that we work with in the Sabi Sand region, so they employ locals from that local, from the local communities. Okay. So there's a lot of employment that has been lost uh, since um, March 2020 when we closed with COVID. So by people joining on a safari, you create an opportunity for someone to work, okay, which is an income source. Now, a lot of these communities, you have three or four families living under one roof or three, three or four generations living under one roof. Um, and so they, we all need it. And that's, that will be off the top of my head that is definitely the best way to support both conservation and the communities as well. Um, is just by giving, I know that there's quite a few lodges that can't afford to, to pay the staff 100% salary yet. And it's sad, you know, I've, I've had a lot of friends that have, um, that have closed down. A lot of people have lost livelihoods. There's been a lot of uh, people that have to go to America to go work on the farms there. That's massive now, you know, to, to do farming work that side. Um, a lot of people moving because they 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 couldn't find jobs. Um, they lost their jobs, and our tourism is up and down. It's 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 not nearly where it should be, you know, um, where it was prior to to COVID. So I definitely think that is the the biggest way that one could actually um, give to the communities and give to to nature conservation in Africa. I would think that that would also mean less poaching if more people had jobs. There would be yes. Yeah. Yes, no, definitely. Armand, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I, I hope you will keep in touch. Yeah. And no. I, I hope that we can figure some something out in terms of, of um, showcasing your work or, or doing some, something with your safaris because I think that they're, they're an incredible way to, like you said, yeah, 
give back right. to nature and right. your community. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, uh, Catherine. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be able to talk to you and to, to meet you. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank the listeners as well uh, for your time. It, uh, it means a lot. And uh, yeah, I'll be here <laughs> to come Excellent. chat anytime. But thanks very much. Thank Enjoy you the rest much. of your day. You too. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.